Hi everyone, welcome to the first Paddock Pass podcast note show from the Grand Premier Monster Energy to Catalonia. There we go, <laughs> got the pit lane horn going already. So somebody's probably running laps around the track, Dave, for, uh, well, we're enjoying the sunshine and the warm temperatures here. The weather forecast for the weekend is not looking so smart. But uh, at the moment, Dave, everything's looking very shiny, rosy, sunny, balmy. It's uh, yeah, it, it's lovely because normally this is like the hottest place on the face of the planet. Um, and especially, I think we talked about this in the main pod, that the the way well, the, the sort of the location it, again it's in a bowl and there's a lot of uh, asphalt and it really absorbs the heat from the sun and so it just gets incredibly sweaty and it's very humid here as well um but it's just really really pleasant so it's going to be interesting to see what difference it makes in terms of track temperature because that's one of the big big issues here everyone was complaining or was saying basically you know that there's there's no grip here um, which is a shame. It's a fantastic track. It's just that it's a track which has no grip. David Emmett and Adam Wheeler doing this first show uh, from Catalonia. Um, unfortunately, Neil's not here. He had to blag a lift back into the city. Uh, and as we said on the main podcast, this is an advantage for us, Dave. We get to sleep in our own beds for this particular Grand Prix. So uh, yeah, but is I don't want to rub it in. Yeah, but it, I mean... Is it really a, a, an advantage? Because, I mean... It'd Absolutely. Be, well, there you go. I know because some of the Dorna staff, for example, uh, and some of the team staff don't sleep in their own beds because it becomes really quite difficult to concentrate. Um, there are sort of lots of distractions and, uh, you know, you need all of your energy for for work on on a weekend because you know we, we all do very very long days here it depends also a little bit on your commute but uh yeah you're right of course you know i mean there's a number of staff who live in catalonia or close to barcelona and they are you know located in hotels for for that precise reason dave you mentioned there about the track the state of the track i should say that was one of the questions the riders were answering today uh, Maverick Vinales was actually quite surprising about it. He said that three or four weeks ago he was riding a, a street bike around here and he said that the grip was fantastic. Um, but he says this is one of the, the premium events on the calendar. Of course, he's biased. I mean, he has yeah. most of his family and friends. He actually generated a bit of a chuckle amongst us because he said when he goes past his section of the grandstand, he, he knows everybody in there. You know, <laughs> his fan club and you know every, all of his friends and every people have supported him throughout his career. But uh, he said there's one aspect of this circuit that does need fixing, and that is the asphalt. Uh, it was laid in 2018? Yeah, 18. So Which is, I mean, it's only five years old. Generally, um, resurfacing jobs are expected to last between seven and sort of ten years. Um, uh, and also, it depends. It depends so much. It really depends on where it is. Uh, how for much example, use it gets? Yeah, how much use it gets. That that, that can make a big difference, especially like if it's cars or bikes. Uh, another one can be proximity to the sea, for example. So the um, w when you get a sea mist rolling in, that it dumps a lot of salt on the uh, on the surface, and that uh, can be quite aggressive on the uh, on the surface. Uh, a bright sunshine. Um, you know, if you get a really, really hot, uh, a really, really hot, bright, a lot of bright sunshine, then it ages the tarmac really, really quickly. It basically just sort of boils the the the, the tar, which is oil, um, out of it. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's a lot of factors which contribute to wear. Yeah, my wife actually bought me a, a sports car driving experience around this place in 2020, and I, I 
had got to drive a Lamborghini. I can't even remember the model now for two laps. And I was amazed because it was a continuous process of shuttle the people in, get them in the car, get them out, get the next load in into the cars. You know, it was, it was just a continual shift change of customers enjoying these kind of experiences. I think this place is used a lot, not just for um, these kind of track day experiences, but also for testing. I mean, for Formula One as well, it was also quite a popular venue. And launches. I mean, there's a lot of bi bike launches here as well. Uh, yeah, all of these tracks. I mean, we are, we always see these uh, these tracks sort of you know a couple of times a year, um, but that's just not the way that they work. You know, they 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 have to make, to make money. They have to be here all of the time. I know, for example, Aston I think gets used something like 320, 330 days a year, um, uh, and it's not all everyone riding around the, the the big track it is sort of festivals events uh cycling events running events race uh, riding events track days uh bike days um car days group owners you know uh, owners groups that sort of thing so these these thing these tracks get used i refuse to believe there's anyone riding around assen in the drenched winter uh you know when it's minus two uh, well, yes. I mean, it does get it does get cold. But I mean, the, the other thing is they also just use like the, the the actual because it's it's a great big space, and if you need a, a big empty space, then you can do it. But you can it's perfectly good for driving you know driving around cars, uh, that sort of thing, and just fun days out, you know, business days, sort of corporate days. So uh, you know, it'll be a, a company a company day out, and everyone will have a go in a car, and they'll all be going very very slow, and there'll be a company with someone who's sort of dragging the brake all the way around. So, um, uh, yeah, the safety is much easier. As we said on the main podcast, there's quite a lot of pre-event activity going on for this Grand Prix. I mean, a lot of promotional stuff, which I guess is quite cool to see in a way. Uh, you had Peko Bagnaya taking a ride in the... Emirates, the New Zealand Team America's Cup uh, vessel, boat, yacht, whatever it's due to be called. Um, the America's Cup is not happening in Barcelona until October 2024. Um, I actually took part in the Red Bull pre-event uh, yesterday with Jack Miller and Brad Binder, and it was amazing to see how these, I have to say, cash-rich teams have just transformed the port area, the Mary Magnum area of Barcelona, set yep. up their HQs there. They're already training and testing because the boats that they use in this race are highly refined, very technical. I mean, all made of fantastic carbon and everything. It's, It was really quite striking. Anyway, Bagnaya had a ride in one, and then Binder and Miller were in the chase boats, these huge horse-powered um, you know, uh, speed boats, I guess, after the main sailing yachts while they're training. Uh, but it was a, a case where MotoGP is seizing local kind of other sports or initiatives to showcase what's going on. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's funny you talk about the America's Cup because um, one of the top electronics engineers and performance engineers in uh, in the MotoGP paddock, Andrea Zunia, left Yamaha, was poached by uh, HRC from Yamaha. Uh, he left Honda to go and work on the Italian... Um, uh, on the Italian entry for the, for, for the America's Cup. And, you know, I spoke to him a couple of times and he said, it's like, you know, it, it, it's amazing the amount of technology. You know, that they, don't, they basically fly through the water. That Again, they're moving yeah. in three dimensions, a lot like motorcycles. So, yeah, they're incredibly advanced. Yeah, it was great to see. Um, but then there was other stuff going on, like Gas Gas had a, a riding activity with Paulo Spargo and Augusto Fernandez at the Rocco's Ranch, which is now a highly developed off-road facility right next to this circuit. 
in the previous years it used to be a bit of a scratchy kind of motocross track with some enduro trails as well and now it's like you know a first class facility anyway they were doing some kind of dirt tracking with young kids on electric bikes i spoke with christian massa who's one of the sort of the head comms guy at the grassini race team and he said they did a, a signing in a shopping center with alex marquez he expected a few people but he said the response was incredible i mean there was a lot a lot of public interested in meeting marquez and, and discovering more about MotoGP and grassini but my point where I'm eventually ending up is there was also a quite a fancy presentation in the Bourne district of Barcelona, which, you know, is uh, the centerpiece of it is a lot of ancient ruins, um, you know, that's beautifully preserved. And uh, in between Barcelona, the Circuit de Catalunya and Dorna, everybody involved in the organization of this Grand Prix, they made um, a Catalan presentation of this event. And uh, you had the Marquez brothers, you had the Espargaro brothers, you had Albert Arenas and Xavi Artigas. Very Catalan event. But Carmelo Espeleta was there, Dave, and he was speaking to Spanish media afterwards and he was um, giving some comments on a few subjects. Now, Carmelo, uh, you know, I think he should be applauded for his accessibility. He will speak to journalists. He will give interviews. Not every Grand Prix, and not a lot. So I think when he does turn up and he's prepared to speak to media, people kind of jump on him a little bit to get his opinions and they were quite forthright yesterday he said you know for example one of the hot issues is ktm and their five riders for four spots and he was a damn that no the system currently in place in motor gp should not you know cater or be flexible for you know one particular situation or one particular company uh, he says that the independent satellite teams have their own value and have their own rights so therefore he didn't want to just sort of mess with the structure which i guess in some ways is part of an answer to the question we've been having for a few weeks now certainly since austria where it looked like ktm were not going to get a fifth bike on the grid yeah exactly i mean it, as I've said before, I think, um, it's KTM's problem. It's not Dorna's problem. It, it, it really is KTM's problem. You know, like, they've got these five riders, and they've only got four bikes, and um, they they have to... They face the hard decisions. Uh, now, keeping two slots open for a factory team seems... Uh, peculiar to me because as we've said endlessly like who's going to come in and bring uh, bring a new to factory i can't see anyone wanting to join um but they do have to actually protect the uh, the satellite teams and especially a ktm backed uh, a satellite team with pedro acosta and and well a and other, especially if that A and other um, uses the racing number 93, <laughs> then it would be a little bit, um, it would be very hard for the other satellite teams, you know. Um, so it, their position is understandable, even though you sort of like think, well, there are two slots which aren't filled. Uh, we could have more bikes on the grid. But then, yeah, I mean, the question is, what is the benefit of having two more bikes uh, uh, on the grid? What is the what is the added value going from 22 to 24? It's not that great. Um, uh, and if yes, of course we want Pedro Acosta in MotoGP, um, but if KTM really want Pedro Acosta in MotoGP, they can find a way to get him there. Yeah, it's going to be disappointing for somebody or um, acute contractual negotiations you would imagine between Augusto Fernandez and Paulo Spargaro. So, but Carmelo Espeleta, I mean the CEO of Dorna, um, a tip of the cap by the way for his Catalan which was very impressive. You know, Spain of course has various different dialects and languages within one mainland so uh, the fact that he could do a public presentation in, you know, the Catalan language was uh, was impressive. 
He was also saying on the subject of concessions that it's still something that's on the table. Uh, he hopes also that the, the teams will... Uh, use some humanity um, with respect to their competitors because it was Honda and Yamaha acquiesced to Ducati's request back in the day to get competitive. Uh, it, it's still something that's hanging in the air. And I think he is encouraging it, but also taking a step back a little bit. I, I, understandably, Dorno don't want to force any hands. No, but I mean, it, it was interesting listening to Juan Mir today because the way that Mir was talking was as if it was almost a done deal. So it, it seems like within Honda... Um, there is a feeling that it that this will happen. Um, also, I think I saw an interview with um, uh, Gigi Delinia in which he was much more open to allowing concessions. Um, again, what it seems to be is just it's not so much that um, they need they want to change the concession or that they want to you know give concessions to. The uh, to struggling factories, what they want to do is change the system so that it works for for everyone, and that would mean having different set of concessions for uh, factories which have uh, which are now struggling, and also uh, a different system for or a different set for for new factories who join. Uh, Espeleta on another subject, Dave, um, on the future of the Catalan Grand Prix. Uh, in the past, we understand that. The four Spanish Grand Prix we've seen before would be reduced to three with a circulation process. Yeah, I think the the, the idea is to have uh, the, there are five races on the Iberian Peninsula, including Portimao in Portugal, and the idea is to have four races on the Iberian Peninsula every uh, every year, rotating every five years. So in theory, the Catalan Grand Prix could be replaced by Aragon yeah. next year. Uh, so his public comment was that it's possible there's a Catalan Grand Prix in 2024. But the the circulation or the rotation process that Dorna wanted to do, he was careful to say that it's something that can be done that doesn't need to be done. Hey, was he using the conditional tense? Yeah, so I mean, very political, yeah, very yeah, astute. The, but the, the, I mean, this is always going to be the problem. I mean, and I, I think this is something we've discussed at length as uh, as well. You could you could quite easily hold six or seven Grand Prix here, and you'd have sixty, seventy, eighty thousand at every single race. Um, uh, there are some the uh, uh, the for me the one race which would be very difficult to rotate would be uh, Jerez. Uh, because it is the first, it is the season opener. Um, obviously, Valencia. Where a lot of people turn up to Valencia also because it's the last race of the of the season. Um, I don't think that would necessarily need to be held in uh, in Valencia. You could hold that one here, for example. I don't think the the climatic differences are that different in what is it, 200 kilometers, 150 kilometers from here to uh, from here well, to Valencia. The, the Spanish GPs have their own flavors, don't they? Because, yeah. like Damiao was saying on on the podcast this week, I mean, Jerez is more the international. That is the Spanish Grand Prix. Yes. Whereas Valencia, like you say, is a season ender. That's also a place where we see a lot of industry people, people turning up to sort of wave goodbye to MotoGP before it disappears for the winter. Whereas the Catalan round takes place in a city just outside a city, but it has the highest number of motorcycles per head yeah. in Europe. So the people come into this race, you know, of course, there is a, a, a tourism element, but then they are largely Catalans, natives, locals. Uh, yeah, I think um, Espargaro in the same presentation in Born in Barcelona on um, Thursday, Wednesday evening was saying that, um, you know, uh, you know, the weather is, is bad. 
then that's good because it's going to attract people not to go to the beach and actually come to the race. You know, <laughs> if it's slightly indifferent, you know, what if it's cloudy, go to the race instead of, uh, you know, being on the beach. I'm not sure if it was a Spargaro or maybe it was Carmelo cracking a gag actually to get people to, to come to the GP. But um, it, it's, this feels like a strong event. It's been a monster event for I'm not, not sure how many years. And, um, you know, I, I think we're expecting it to be pretty entertaining this weekend as well uh yeah i mean th this race is always interesting because uh, as we talked about the surface the surface means that it's a tire uh, it always makes it a tire management race now i know a lot of people complain about that but the best thing about it is uh the race is always open right to the end even when someone builds up a big lead uh, you'll see you know the lap times drop off two or three seconds at the end of the race and all of a sudden that five second lead that you've got is worth nothing it can disappear in like three laps um and so yeah you you really have to save the tire until uh, until the very end so you know you can have no grip but again uh Mir, i said because the problem big problem for the hondas is that they have no grip so if you come to a track with no grip then you know they're not really losing anything where if, you, if you've got a lot of mechanical grip then uh and you come to a track with no grip you've got no grip um, so I said, you know, are you losing more? And he says, well, it doesn't really make all that much difference. You're still, you, you've still got no grip. Um, uh, but you do pay anything, any uh, advantage you try to get at the start of a race, you pay, really pay for it at the end. So it's one of those where it takes a long time. Again, Andrea Dovizioso has got a very strong record here. Valentina Rossi has been fantastic here because these are riders who really, really deeply understand how to manage their tires. Now, I think Pekka Banyaya has really sort of started to master that. We saw that in uh, Austria, how much more tire he had than everyone else at, at another track, which is really, really hard on tires. And just for people who are curious about the results or how Sunday may go uh, Bagnai hasn't he said in the press conference himself he hasn't finished higher than six here at this track I mean that's that's quite a record so if he smashes everybody on Sunday then it really could set a marker for the second half of the season couldn't it yeah but I mean he should have he should have been on the podium last year but um, uh, Takanakagami went a uh, bit kamikaze on him he went he did get uh, well, I mean they've been what was it they've been talking about being ambitious uh, he was <laughs> excessively ambitious which is why it's bizarre that he, uh, that he didn't actually get a penalty for it um, uh, but yeah I mean uh, well Takanakagami is likely to be uh, starting much further back on the race so uh, so uh, Peko should be safe uh, In other news Marco Bezeki spoke for the first time about his <coughs> new contract uh, as we expected he highlighted the human factor of staying in his team over the possible marginal gains that a GP24 might have over a 23 of course that's the big question for him going into next season uh, you know, and then like Pekka Bagnaia as well saying, you know, you cannot underestimate how important the, the human factor is, you know, when you come to racing. Uh, Mark Marquez was put in a slightly difficult position when he was asked by, you know, our colleague Frank Wink, do you prioritize the human side or the motorcycle? Uh, and he sort of managed to escape by saying, well, I, I prioritize the project, which I guess is a combination and a cute way of getting out of it. Because, you know, right now, having had the same team for a decade, he needs the motorcycle. But, uh, you know, Bezeki seems very settled where he is, Dave. It's uh, very promising that for him, what could lie ahead? Yeah, uh, and honestly, you know, look what he's doing on a GP22. 
Um, he, he's taking it to the riders on his two. The, the, his two main rivals are well. I mean, leaving Brad Bender aside for a moment, his two main rivals are Pekka Banyaya and Jorge Martin, both on newer motorcycles. But because of the package he has, because the people around him, the environment he's in, he's able to be much faster. And again, we mentioned it on the main part. Look at Enea, what Enea Bastianini is doing. Obviously, he's been injured, but he struggled really, really badly because he's gone from a warm, friendly family atmosphere inside Grassini to factory Ducati, um, also having to change his crew chief because his crew chief didn't um, uh, didn't want to go with him to the factory Ducati team because he'd already spent a long time in the factory Ducati team with Andrea Dovizioso, so he left to join he left to join KTM. On the subject of crew chiefs, uh, Cryptodata RNF Racing, the RNF Unlocked podcast you recorded today with Neil, uh, and also you had Ralph Fernandez and his crew chief in there. What did you learn? Was it was it a good session? It was a, it was a very interesting session. Um, uh, again, the it, it actually it's always really good to hear from a crew chief and a rider together uh, Raul Fernandez and Noé Herrera um, they were together in Moto2 in, in Raul's incredibly successful Moto2 champion, uh, championship um, a year uh, then um, Raul went off to KTM and had a really bad there you know never really felt at home then he came in you know came back to RNF uh, he said you know maybe 90% of the decision to, to work with RNF was because he could work with uh, with Noé again um, he showed us a um, uh, the, he showed us a screenshot of one of his calls with Noé, and it was an hour and eighteen minutes or something. And this is sort of something they do all the time. It's such a close and intense relationship. It, it's always a bit of a shame that um, Raúl has quite a strong accent when speaking English. His English is quite good, but you have to listen intensely. But I would definitely, it's definitely worth it. He says a lot of things about trust, um, uh, about the um, amount of time he has to spend outside of the box outside of uh, you know doing all these media activities doing things like recording the rnf podcast unlocked podcast with us uh, talking to media doing uh, debriefs doing interviews um uh, doing all the dawner tv stuff doing uh, doing sponsor things and it's, it, it becomes quite frustrating because you know he really wants to be spending his time in the box um uh, and sometimes he's he has been in a situation where he's just told no way! Look, you choose the tyres. You can see the data. I trust you um, to make uh, to make the right choice because he hasn't been had the time to sit down and make a choice. That's I mean, like the tyres tyre choice is the most important thing in all of racing. You know that feel, that confidence. It's your contact as a rider. It's your contact with the. Um, uh, with the track, I've just got new tyres on my motorbike, so I know all about it. I'm very, very <laughs> enthusiastic about it. So um, uh, yes, it's uh, it, it's so important, and so to put that choice in the hands of someone else shows you just how much trust there is. Yeah, I did an interview today with Brad Binder's crew chief, Andres Madrid, and uh, I thought you know it'd be a 15-minute session. That's what we had. It ended up being almost 40 minutes. I mean, it's fascinating conversation. But he was basically saying how riders sometimes can tie themselves up in knots and one of Binder's great strengths is he keeps everything very simple and he has absolute trust in the technical crew around him. I guess that's something you have to develop with a, a, a set of people and this also ties into the Bezeki theme. Uh, but then, you know, same thing for Fernandez. You know, if he has to go out not really knowing what tires yep. are on, uh, I guess you have to seed 
a degree of control to the people around you to allow your energy to go into other places. Yeah, exactly. To be able to focus more on on riding. It was also interesting uh, uh, what Noe Herrera was saying about building up confidence again. So when uh, Raul lost a lot of confidence in the year with where uh, we with with Tech Three, just because you know he didn't feel at home there, the whole the whole situation was bad, and so they started off in Portimao, um, just trying to give him as much confidence as possible in the front end to build confidence in riding, and then as he gained confidence, then they could sort of start taking weight off the front end and start working on the rest of the package to get more performance. Uh, just quickly, also talking about the crypto data our NF team, they gave a press conference right at the end of today, uh, announcing the CETO Ponce is the new CRO, which we had to look up, and it's the chief revenue officer, and it makes this team arguably one of the strongest you would say certainly in terms of management with Razan Rosali Wilco Zielenberg team manager now Cito Ponce I think he said he had something like 42 years experience between riding team managing or just appreciating the politics of this sport so uh, what did you think they've sitting there I mean you would imagine that somebody like Ponce and his vast contact book is only going to be a good thing for that squad yeah I mean it's got to be it's got to be good for the team um, th th I mean, there has to be a lot of a lot of reasons to actually uh, do that. Uh, but again, like one of the reasons that Cito Pond sold his team was because it was getting more and more difficult to raise revenue for Moto Two, uh, and it's the same with Moto Three. The sport has gone behind a paywall, and so there's a lot less interest in the smaller classes. Now, it, it may be much more interesting for the sponsors which CETO has worked with in the past to be actually be with Moto, uh, with, in a MotoGP team. To me, it's also what I've always found intriguing about CETO Ponce is his uncanny ability to identify riders. Um, who are underappreciated and over-talented. Uh, you know, if you look at the list of, you know, he's had Paul Aspargaro, he's had Fabio Quattararo. Um, who else is he? he, he I mean, uh, I'd have to go through... There's the, an immense role there, the, really. It is, yeah. The, yes, yeah. Uh, uh, I think Alex Rins. Um, uh, uh, it was one of the two Suzuki boys, either Alex Rins or Juan Mir. Uh, but he's uh, diversified, hasn't he? He's yes. moved between different sponsors, different projects, MotoGP, Moto2. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't don't have that kind of longevity without being smart or exactly seeing, being seeing able a strategy exactly no i mean he was always very very clever at um and making sure he had good material good riders uh and strong sponsors well that's it for today uh, today dave uh, until tomorrow when we get some news on what's happening in free practice one and practice two no practice no. it's <sighs> free practice one practice, practice. free practice two Q1, Q2, sprint, warm-up, race. I'm glad somebody's finally got it right. So uh, <laughs> thank goodness for you. Bless you. <laughs> Not because you want to sneeze either, just for your talents and your knowledge on this note show. Um, guys, if you've got anything you want to know from us, uh, any comments, as always, let us know. We'll try and find out tomorrow or try to answer them on the uh, Friday edition of the note show. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>